a hold of the wheel and turn it for yourself. Live like you ain't ever gonna lose. Choose to be the one who favors kindness over wealth. Don't be somebody else's fool. You've gotta play by your own rules. There's a thin, thin line between the rhymes and the truth. Not knowing who's in charge of either one. Visions of tomorrow always well within my view. Begging me to chase the setting sun. Take a hold of the wheel and turn it for yourself. Live like you ain't ever gonna lose. Choose to be the one who favors kindness over wealth. Don't be somebody else's fool. Gotta play by your own rules. Sweet picking of Sam Bush. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And welcome back. This is we're, we're really excited. We've got doubly reasons so to be excited. excited. So excited. Not only do we have Sam Bush, legend. Of bluegrass, father of newgrass, according to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and many, many others. We also have Spike, Brian Spike Bukowski, head brewer of Terrapin, who's been very patient. He drove out here from Athens just to discuss the situation that's going on with uh, the majority takeover and to kind of, you know, give the real deal on what's, what's so, going to change and what isn't. So for you beer drinkers, stick around to the end and have a listen. And for you bluegrass pickers... Don't be too picky about the beginning of the show. But well, anyways, <laughs> Sam, Bush, Sam Bush means a lot to both of us. For me, it was mainly the Merle Fest. I went to uh, three of those in the 90s, and Sam Bush is all, all, all over that festival, and I remember him knocking me out many times. I've seen him other places here and there, but mainly Merle Fest. Wow. And you, Seth, you have a bit of a history with Sam. Well, I mean, it's a little bit, but not that big of a history. But yeah, definitely working with Sam at the Strings and Souls. Uh, Mexico events with Yonder Mountain and uh, several of the other bands like Green Sky. But Sam's always been um, willing to participate, kind of like Simon, our last guest on the last episode, um, in the, doing the activities. But yeah, Sam's always always been great with that. But my first exposure to Sam was Tullyrod was before I was I was on the road, uh, and it's another story I'll tell you. In two thousand, summer of two thousand, I was doing a tour, and I was I just graduated college. At any rate. Um, was promoting this website called headjams.com and I, well, I'll tell the story another time but I was going through Colorado and I wasn't making Tullyride but they had Tullyride on the rocks it was my first show at Red Rocks and it was like Leftover Salmon and Sam Bush and um, there you know Sam David Christman is that that yeah, one? yeah he was at that one too I believe so yeah and it was, it was pretty awesome and uh, Sam just just you know that's I was like whoa rock and roll bluegrass and then and here's a precursor to our interview, by the way, with Sam. I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but the night before we um, did the interview, I happened to be going through a bunch of old photos. Now, I had a mount. If anyone knows a pile of crap in a room, it's you. And uh, Yeah, I got a cop to that one. <laughs> so my wife, uh, when she left town, she asked me. She left all my photos from high school, college, elementary school. Yeah, my life. My life worth of photos. And she said, you know, go through them, clean them up, keep what you want. And I realized that a lot of these photos, by the way, are of like mountains and like scenery and not much of my friends. I was like, all right. So I kind of, you know, I, cl- I cleaned up the pile. But while I'm doing that, I found I used to take cassette tapes, the little, you know, the little small tapes, the handheld recorders. And, and my buddy and I, when we went traveling, 
We're still talking about Sam Bush, right? Oh, yeah. We're okay. there. <laughs> we were traveling. Uh, we were in Europe, and we would take these recorders with us. Records just like on the train. Oh, we're on the... Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like recording moments. And here we are in like, you know, the um, a beer house in Belgium. And Anyway, one of the clicks... So I was listening to this as I'm going through these photos. And one of the clicks is, we're going to have a revival. A revival. You know, and like... And it was... From a live performance? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a live... Uh, a lot, yeah, recording, but yeah, it was and it was of the Newgrass revival, and so here I am getting ready for the interview, cleaning up all these photos, and then that pops on. Uh, so it's you know, it's funny how music is part of your life for so much longer than you actually recall it. And this episode ends with a live uh, Newgrass revival track, and uh, Sam Bush is just a big bundle of positive energy. But uh, we got to move on. We don't have much time because we're, we're going to go along with Spike because a lot of people want to know that stuff. But I did get to. Uh, Get to do a couple cool local things. First of all, went to Wonder Dog Sound Studios. And for a boy uh, who's more of a live music boy, I've seen a lot of live shows, but I'm a little uh, naive in the... I've only, it's only six or seven time I've watched a band work on a record. It's really, really, really quite interesting. Especially Wonder Dog, because I use these classic... Uh, Old tube mics and preamps and stuff to get a cool sound out of the Wurlitzer, for example. Were they all individualized into their different rooms, or were they all playing together in the live setting? They had done the live tracks already, and they were they were adding stuff. And what band? And this is a Voodoo Visionary. Dennis Dowd was playing the Wurlitzer. I got to work, see him work, and I got to see Scotty McDonald uh, sing some lead tracks. But what was amazing was the way the members of the band and the people in the studio kind of exchanged ideas and were real chill. It was just very amicable, very much of a being in the in the belly of the beast of a creative beast. It was kind of, it was really cool. There's something to be said about studio work. I mean, it's, uh, live performance is amazing. I love live performance, but what, you got to think, a lot of bands, you know, when they go to the studio, they, they really dial in on what the, what the song is going to be. And I, I mean, I take, I was, th- I was listening to a fish song earlier and I was thinking like, yeah, it was, it was actually the Halloween show, and I was it listening. It's fish talk once yeah, again. And, and so Mr. Seth and his favorite band, Fish. I, I was listening to the fish set, and uh, no, but so the point is, is that once it's performed live, you got to think what what it was before it got there, and a lot of times it takes the studio setting where a band, forget Fish or whoever, take a band goes ahead and and polishes and figures out how they want that song to be, and that is the song for the duration of its life. Yeah, or a song can evolve live, but then that, that studio thing is kind of frozen in time, I guess. But uh, they're going to uh, open for talk yeah, yeah, at, the, <laughs> at the Variety Playhouse in November. And speaking- Whoa, whoa, stop. Do you just say they're going to open up for what? Talk, T-A-U-K. Oh, I was like, Rob, you hate talkers. Right, no. That shows. But I love that talk. Shows, that shows. Let me just say, if you guys are fans of drums, go see talk. The whole band's great, but the drummer is outstanding. Outstanding. And the Variety, I got to walk through there today with Brad and get an update. Go ahead first. Variety Playhouse, if you don't know, for those of you not in Atlanta, it's an Atlanta staple venue. One of the best venues in Atlanta, one of the best listening music, live music rooms in Atlanta. Just recently purchased by the folks over that are doing the Georgia Theater and a couple other venues. And and let me add, it's a classic historic building that almost was torn down a couple times. It was used to store army surp- army crap for like decades. I mean, it, 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 it was down and out for a long, long time. It was revived primarily by Steve Harris and Windstorm Productions. And now, as you said, Scott Orvaldo and the folks at uh, 
Georgia Theater um, have taken it over and completely remodeled it. It's pretty impressed. They're going to they're gonna lower the floor in front of the stage because if any of you remember, it, when it was a standing show, the people in the front rows of the seats couldn't see over standing people. That won't be a problem. Really? Anymore. And yes. so what about the uh, exit row? It feels as though the stage is higher, but the floor is just What about lower. that exit row where they make everybody... That, God, it's the stupidest thing. You see, know I don't know. They have to, they have to, that'll be when it's all finished. But um, All right, I won't get into my rant there then. They have brand new theater seats. It's going to be slightly larger standing. It's going to be 1170, 11.75 standing. Still about seven seven fifty for a seated show. More, um, more curtains, more, more sound buffers, but they do the sound last. They more get all bar? The, get all the yeah, you know all the construction shit done, and then they go in. Yeah, what's it, what's it gonna sound like here? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? New lighting trusses, new everything, man. And the triangle love is at work that you talk about. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Bringing back the triangle love from episode three. How you doing? It's popped up a couple more times, but. <laughs> The backstage is going to be a nicer production area. It's going to be more, more showers and cleaner and better bathrooms. It's will going to be pretty op- sweet backstage, too. Will the opening band still have to climb up the spiral stair? Yeah, but some, like Sean <laughs> Mullins, he was saying loves that. When Sean Mullins headlines, he uh, hangs up. Some artists like yeah. that. That's secluded. The it's bird the, cage. The bird yeah, cage. Yeah, the bird cage. I love that. I, I asked him if we could do interviews up there, and he kind of went, mm-hmm. But I was like, what if there's no opener? He's like, he kind of gave me the, you know, kind of probably kind of look. But he, he didn't commit. He's too smart to commit to stuff like that. A lot of exposed brick. Jeez. Plaster came off. I was shocked how much brick is in that building, and I hope they don't cover that up. Huge mortar. bar going to be upstairs. The downstairs bar is a wraparound bar, and then and then there's going to be a little area between uh, the wraparound bar and just over the sound and light area, so that's where you're going to want to be. It's going to be a standing area at the back, the dead center of the variety. Uh, it probably will end up being VIP because it's such a good spot, and everybody's going to go for it. You the know dead I mean? center. Is that a Grateful Dead reference, Rob? Is what? The dead center. No, that's no. No, you're, <laughs> don't force it. Let the comedy come to you, Seth. Oh, come on. Uh, there's going to be a top over the smoker's deck. There's going to be. Sm- is the smoker's deck still outside, though? Yes. Okay. Of course. Uh, there'll be some reserved seating shows. There's a standing area also at the back of the balcony. I may take use of that. I remember the old variety. Yeah, I'm almost done. It's just pretty cool. They're repainting the, the entire outside. We might have, they might add an LED marquee. Um, it's just it's going to be a bit nicer experience, and and also for the employees, they've expanded. It's going to be easier to get the bar, the, right. the beers in and out of storage, and all that. Everybody's taken care of the fans, the employees, and the uh, and the artists. Talk Isn't about that the, the employees, yeah, yeah. But to bring out the employee thing here, that's something to talk about. So here you have a club that's been going on, a, a venue, a music theater. venue, a theater that's been going theater. on for several years. And one of the things that makes it unique is that it it doesn't have a high turnover on staff. The staff there, the door guys, the door guy. The beer, you know, people, the folks that are working the venue, if you go to shows, you recognize them, you have a rapport with them, like, you know, the same people. This is a career job for folks, you know? Are they keeping the same people, or are we going to see new a lot of new oh, life? yes. And now Scott Orvald's been pretty cool about that ever since he got involved with this. The variety has remained intact employee-wise, and from what I understand, he's been pretty, pretty damn cool and respectful of everything. I want to add two more important things. There's two more emergency exits on the main floor, and there's... Bathrooms, men's and women's bathrooms, not just upstairs, but downstairs as well. So you'd say there's two emergency exits to your left and to your right, and the bathrooms, men's and women's. There's one in the front of the plane and in the back of the plane. So let's get to that interview. <laughs> yes, let's. Uh, big thank you to Sam Bush and his lovely wife, Lynn, for helping us coordinate that interview. Um, and it's a city winery in Atlanta. Thank you, guys. You guys have been so gracious to us, uh, really making us home. I had the mean cheese plate this time. That's delicious, too. And and the house red, awesome, just mm-hmm. awesome. 
And uh, God, God that, bless I, you, the terrifying. You, you start it. talking about wine, the guy that's the beer guy here starts sneezing. I think he's allergic to wine. I love it. Yeah. Well, we don't want Seth's, anyone. We have, we have one of the greatest brewers in the world in the building, and Seth's drinking wine. Uh... Why not? And speaking of why not, hey, everyone, we really hope you enjoy this interview. We did. Uh, and so without uh, Rob Turner being Remind, able to get another word to, in. Reminder to stick <laughs> around to hear Spike. And, and yes. it's very interesting if you're into uh, business at all. And if you're a fan of Terrapin, this is a pretty cool story about uh, a brewery making good. Yes, sir. And after this, uh, Rob, what do you say we uh, pack up the car and head to Lockin? I'm excited. My daddy loved that farm, he damn near worked us all to death He loved a fiddle tune, he played them to his dying breath My mama was a saint, Lord she left this earth too soon If there's a heaven up above, they're dancing to a fiddle tune Bowling Green, Bowling Green There's nothing left in those foothills but lonesome melodies have my years, but you can't have their memories. I'll see you in my dreams, Bowling Green. Our guest is a founding member of the landmark group, The New Grass Revival but he has most certainly had an impressive solo career as well. He has won three Grammys, was honored by the Americana Music Association with a Lifetime Achievement for Instrumentalist Award, and has won a slew of Best Mandolinist Awards of various kinds. And he and his band were just treated to three fresh nominations for International Bluegrass Association Awards. Not only is he a native of Kentucky, but he is an honorary Kentucky colonel, and six years ago, that state passed legislation formally identifying him as the father of Newgrass and his hometown of Bowling Green as the birthplace of Newgrass. He has recorded with giants like Leon Russell, Lyle Lovett, Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris, and Garth Brooks, and worked extensively with modern acoustic giants who are also friends of his like Edgar Meyer, Bela Fleck, Tony Rice, David Grisman, Mark O'Connor, Jerry Douglas, and so, so many more. And Sam is also the subject of the documentary Revival, The Sam Bush Story. But perhaps most important of all, regarding this man once described by No Depression Magazine as a cubist mandolinist, this is a man who exudes such overt joy when he is on stage that one would have to be pretty damn cold inside not to crack a smile when at one of his performances. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome to Inside Out with Turner and Seth, Mr. Sam Bush. ways I just discovered a couple days ago that it's unglued from about here to here and part of that's opening so that happens about every 20 years more surgery <laughs> seriously yeah I, when this gigs over tonight the strings are lowered because my actions raising and I know what's wrong so it makes that one do that so he's good for a gig you want to jump in yeah we are on the back of Sam Bush's bus 
And I just want to first say that in, in honor of the lead track of a new CD, I want to say that we here at Inside Out with Turner and Seth, we, we, play, we play by our own rules. You must play by your own rules while abiding by societies, of course. Well, do you find it's so interesting that society rewards uniqueness but seems to often encourage sameness? Like, for example, we're yeah. getting, we get a lot of feedback on our podcast, and it seems to be a lot of times people wanting it to be like other forms of entertainment. Right. Do you well, have you, did you find that with music uh, at times in your life? Yes, and, and of course, I guess I most think of the country music industry where many things sound alike, you know, that we hear on the radio. But that's the way pop music sounds to me, too. Uh, I think that may, I, I really believe that's why people have embraced Americana-style music so much, because that Americana means everything from Ralph Stanley to Bruce Springsteen. And it's just, a, you know, Bonnie Ray, it's Americana. It's great, you know. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, when you when you started with the Newgrass revival, that was that's exactly that where people are saying, "Oh, you're playing bluegrass music, but you're not." <laughs> right, and uh, and of course, we were we were custom made for back then of FM radio with you know no program directors and the DJs got to do what they want. So, but you know, way back when we had the revival, when people would come up to us and go, especially when we we're early. Uh, and we'd be standing around warming up, jamming at a festival, and they go, "Well, that ain't bluegrass." And we'd go, "We know. <laughs> You're right." <laughs> the new CD is called Story Man, and it's very joyful, much like your stage presence. Uh, it encourages kindness over wealth, fond reflection, and overall positivity and gratefulness. And I want to talk about the Transcendental Meditation Blues. Okay, cool. Which I was just discussing with your with your wife. Uh huh. Did you guys do TM together? I mean, I know the story's no. about meeting her way back. Yeah, that well, Jeff Black, who I love to write with, and I consider one of the greatest going. Uh, I, I think Jeff first came up with the transcendental meditation blues as a as a thought. Uh, but he and I had talked about this story of I think summer of '78 when my transmission was out all summer, and I'd take the Greyhound bus up to Louisville to see Lynn about a two and a half three hour ride, and uh, it's just a story. I mean, it's in the way Jeff and I like to write it, and. Um, so it's a story about the bus breaking down and, and the days before cell phones. And so in, even in the bridge, it, it kind of says, when I'm broke down, are you waiting? <laughs> because uh, it, it was really late and we and uh, coming up, going north from Cave City, Kentucky, then that bus route has to go through Fort Knox. So the bus finally came to a screeching halt in Fort Knox. Well, the air conditioner had been out for an hour before that. And, and people are getting weird, you know, and... Um, and there's an actual lyric in the song that uh, where Jeff and I discussed whether this should be used, and we decided, yeah, it should, where, where I said, I don't worry, the old black man beside me's got a smile on his face. And when, and when the bus broke down, and this old guy had to be about 90 years old, and one of those old farmers that wears a felt hat and long sleeve shirt with a coat on and overalls and buttoned up to the neck, and that's the way old farmers did it. They were older than my dad. Anyway, he just looked at me, and he, you know, everybody's freaking out, and he he just looked at me and says, "Everything is all right in America." <laughs> <laughs> and he was the greatest guy to sit next to. It has a new grass feel. That song is that by design because it's about uh, a story um, that from that era. I'm I don't know if I I, I, I think that's kind of accidental, but uh, that's the tempo where Jeff and I wrote the song. And Jeff Black was the one that came up with the first little guitar lick, the riff that 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 we play. Uh, but when it, uh, when when we worked it up with the whole band, uh, Lynn had said, "Man, that sounds like the like the old revival record sound with Courtney and Curtis." She like so that was uh, looking back. Yeah, it does. It was accidental, but 
but I don't mind copying the band I was in. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed since you made the last album, you were honored by Bowling Green, as I said in the introduction, uh, Father of Newgrass. Um, birthplace of Newgrass is Bowling Green. Well, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't my idea. I never called myself the father of anything. But um, it, it, it's a gratifying thing, and we were, uh, you know, acknowledged on the, the Kentucky Senate floor. So for a kid that, you know, grew up tobacco and cattle farm Bowling Green, that's a pretty long ways to get to the to being honored at the at the uh, the Kentucky legislator floor. So that's pretty neat. And that's what did that prompt putting the song on the album or No. Or not no, related? no, I knew I wanted that song. Um, it's uh, no, I mean none of that stuff prompts any musical idea, I don't think. Um, no, it's 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 gratifying to be to be acknowledged, and once again, you know, you're I was, I, uh, and that particular governor's awards last year, what they were called the governor's awards. So it's people from Kentucky, and mine was sort of what's called the national award of a person who has gone out and you know gone gone all around America and 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 played their music. But there were artists and poets and what have you as the, of the twelve people that got the governor's award last year. And they and now they called the, you said they, that you're pegged uh, the father, right? Uh-huh. So now we've got you know the next generation of green sky, bluegrass, and bands like that. So I could see you know father. So when the next generation after green sky, are you going to then be grandfather? That's the oh question. No. no. Hey, if I live that long, let's oh, do yeah. it. Why not? I'll just I'll just be glad to be in there somewhere as I am now. Uh, you mentioned Tommy Jackson in the song. Uh-huh. I think a lot of younger folks don't realize what a, what a big name he was in Nashville and what an influence he was on you. Can you talk about him for a moment? Yeah, well, Tommy Jackson, you know, back when when peop- when they first started calling things albums, they were actually, it was like a photo album, and you would have 578 records to make 10 sides, and you'd have the whole jacket, you know, and you'd have your sleeve, and it would have 578s in there. So my dad would buy these things and so i just kind of grew up looking at him uh, never thinking anything about it he had one that was like an instrumental record by roy acuff that was an album of of 578s but but tommy jackson albums he bought he had a couple of albums by tommy with 78s and um and tommy was like the guy that when you hear old you know ray price records and uh, he was just the, the main session fiddle player in nashville for a long time until buddy spiker actually came in and got some of the work and so tommy it's like uh there's 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 a couple of licks it's like but that's like nick nick so we know how to start it each time but tommy kind of did that and, and made a way to play country fiddle on these swing tunes and his uh his records his square dance records um Sometimes he had electric guitar playing the other lead part, but other times he had a mandolin player. So I grew up copying that mandolin player on the Tommy Jackson records. Later, I played a, a session. I was just old enough to get in and play some with some of the session guys that would have played on some of that stuff. Ray Eddington was the guitar player, and I asked Ray, who's the mandolin player? And he said, Hank Garland. He's I went, a jazz guitarist. I went, Hank Garland? Yeah. Sugar, Sugarfoot Garland? Uh, I didn't know he played the mandolin, and then Ray said, well, he didn't really. He was just such a great musician that Tommy would teach him the songs right before they played it, right before they recorded them. He, he learned them, and that's why he doesn't note it the same way you know, a bluegrass mandolin player would note. So I, 
So that's the story of my style. I grew up playing like a guy that didn't really play mailing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm, uh, he really had those fiddle melodies just like Tommy, and that was really an advantage. And this is your singer-songwriter record, is that correct? Yeah, so to speak. I mean, it's the closest I've ever come to it, in that I at least co-wrote all the songs. And so in that, you know, one of them's an instrumental, Scott Vestal and I wrote, and then there's another instrumental, all five of us wrote in the Sam Band. And, um, but other than that, it was writing with my very talented pals that, mm-hmm. you know, when you sit down with Guy Clark, all of a sudden you're a little better than you were <laughs> just by association. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned Guy Clark. It's yeah. kind of heavy. It's, it's the song, uh, it's about <clears throat> cancer. And he, he was dying of what my mother died of, lymphoma, at the time. And you're writing Carcinoma Blues with him, right? Yeah, we wrote it way back when, uh, when he and Verlin Thompson and I wrote. We actually wrote it before he and Verlin and I wrote The Ballad of String Bean and Estelle. And uh, we had written it and we wanted it to be kind of from the point of view in a subtle way uh, of the patient and the loved one that watches the patient go through this and that's why there's a verse uh, about you know where it said she said how come nobody ever asked me why I'm feeling blue because I know from personal experience that people will ask you the patient or ask your loved one how the patient is not very often hey how you doing watching them go through this so because they're going through it too and uh, so it was, uh, and I, you know, Guy and I talked about this because uh, with Guy's sense of humor, he's, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly what he said, but it was kind of like, well, I, he was in, it was a few weeks before he passed away and I was talking to him in the hospital. I said, well, I've recorded that song. It's going to come out. I hope it doesn't make anybody squeamish. <laughs> And uh, one of the things he said in looking up, you know, from his bed was tough. <laughs> the T, the tough had, it was a two or three syllable word, tough. <laughs> so, you know, me and Guy, I mean, we, we you know, he, he never wanted to feel sorry for himself, that's for sure. Uh, I'd like to talk about Emily Lou Harris a little bit. Uh, first of all, there's a song with her singing on this that's kind of a poke at uh more commercial side of country music modern day well i mean it's uh, it, i mean we mean it to be light-hearted but we have wondered if is that what changed country music when people quit playing their guitars and uh, and i just know that uh, she and i were both talking about it that when you see those old time life commercials come on tv for half an hour and the country music you know entertainers from the 50s and 60s that people were kind of identified by their guitar. You know, Don Gibson played a Super 400 Gibson, you know, Porter Wagner, D28 Martin, then a J200. You know, the Wilburn brothers had matching guitars. The Everly brothers had matching guitars. And when Elvis quit playing his guitar, his sound totally changed because the sound of his early records, you hear his guitar. And um, not so... Just, not just the sound. It's just, yeah, his, his rhythm playing. So at any rate, it was just kind of like, so a handheld, and then we, uh, then we thought, hey, I know, we'll make a jovial verse about TVs making stars. They took some good old country boys and cased up their guitars. <laughs> when the camera started rolling, they were out there all alone with nothing to hold on to but a handheld microphone. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, so for us, and, and uh, we, we wrote it in a country shuffle. And so when I was go- to record it, I knew that I wanted to do an actual country sounding a, a country song and not bluegrass guys trying to sound country so we hired pig robbins the great session legend in nashville on piano 
and to help guide us. And when I, when I got him on the phone, I said, I'd like to record a country shuffle. need you to help us out on it. And he said, country shuffle? I haven't played one of those in 20 years. <laughs> he said, great, I'll do it. And, so, and then we had him overdub on the Carcinoma Blues also. But we cut the song with Pig, and he was really helpful with when you do the walking bass and when you just play the two-beat style. Because that's, I mean, he's one of the guys that wrote the book on how you do that. And you were a member of um, Emma Lou's Nash Ramblers in the early 90s, correct? Five, five years. There's two, two things I'd like to ask you about. First of all, you made a live album in the then-condemned Ryman Auditorium. Is uh-huh. that correct? That is correct. Why was it condemned at that time? Because there was holes in the floor and the plumbing was shot and there was, there was holes in the roof. And, I mean, it was, this building was falling apart. And, uh, and so I think they were allowed 250 people maybe were in there. And, that's, and the applause sounds so great. On that, but part of the sound of that record is the sound of that room. It really is, and um, and I truly believe that uh, by Emmy Lou and the band recording that live album, that she really helped save that building. I mean, it was that I don't know if they had plans to renovate it yet, but there was only one working bathroom, and there were holes in the floors, and the plumbing shot, and it was just amazing. There were holes in some of the windows up top we could see as we were doing it. Uh, luckily, it was warm, but because uh, when she first said she wanted to do a live album, I, I said, "Wow, yeah, great, man." She goes, "I want to do it the Ryman." I said, "Wow, Emmy, I've heard that the Ryman is condemned." She goes, "Perfect, <laughs> let's do it there." So, how many people were in the audience? Two hundred fifty. <laughs> I mean, it was it was pretty much an invited audience of. You know, people, just, all Nashvilleians, Because it's much. condemned, you can't sell tickets, right? I guess that's how it worked. But I, th- I think it was pretty much an invited audience. And, of course, Nashville uh, always has the largest guest list of anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing, we're in Atlanta. And there was one time you were here with the Nash Ramblers. And the Atlanta Braves were in the seventh game mm-hmm. of the a very famous game here. It was all thanks to Emmy Lou and me. <laughs> that they won that game. <laughs> well, we were allowed. Uh, she used to throw me a bone and let me walk on. She, she uh, let, let's preface. Emmy would sing "Star Spangled Banner," and of course, everybody loves Emmy Lou as they should. And uh, so, she, you know, she could have done this with a harmonica or a pitch pipe or something, but she let me walk on field and hit the hit a chord. To give her the pitch. Of you the, got one job. I, that was it. And then I stood there and hold the guitar the rest of the song. And I remember walking off the field. because So we got to sing before that game. But we didn't get to stay for the game. We were playing across town. And after, the, after we finished our set, I had my... And not to mention, what a great boss she is, because she'd let me watch baseball while we played, it, as long as I told her the score. So I said, can I watch the Braves game? She goes, if you tell me the score. So anyhow, as it all turned out, at the end of that job that night, uh, we, um, we were watching my little Watchman TV when you could still get you know, over airwaves, and we were listening to the Atlanta. We were listening oh, to Skip Carey call the game, but we were watching it there, and, and sure enough, old Sid Bream chugged around and <laughs> scored, <laughs> which is amazing. Does anybody remember who threw the ball to home plate to try to get Sid Bream? I remember Cabrera got the hit. Was it Bar- would it be Bonds? Yeah, Bonds is playing left field. I say, if you guys didn't know, I know who I could call that would know. <laughs> Starts with Colonel. I just happened Bruce. to have seen that just the other day. Actually, oh, really? you had a question about the Colonel, did you not? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we're we're asking all the musicians that have been touched by the Colonel uh, uh, what influence he has had on your life. 
Uh, and we only he, have a half hour. He's influenced, <laughs> he's influenced me to be ready for any time he comes at me with a baseball quiz because he's the best at baseball quizzes. Uh, if anything, just Bruce Hampton has, has inspired people to play out on stage. You know, take a chance. Don't do the safe thing all the time. I think that's what, what Bruce brings to the table. He encourages us all to not be safe. Mm-hmm. And also that, that transcends into... Uh, parking lots and garages and anywhere. And while we're on Absolutely. baseball, Lefty Song has a baseball element to it, and and Allison Krauss sings on that as well. Yeah, well, yeah, because when when you it says it in the first line when Lefty Clark was a young man, he was a handsome Sunday athlete, and somebody is already of a you know much younger than me. I said, right, what, well, what's a Sunday athlete? And I said, well, it's you know it's like uh, my dad used to play in a men's league on Sunday afternoon playing baseball. And, uh, and I just remembered him, you know, he was a farmer, and I remember him being, his legs would be so damn sore the next day that he'd have to lift up his left leg to, do the, to work the clutch in the truck, and, and he'd always go, oh, i got to quit doing that. And, of course, he'd go right back and play next week, and he was a good ball player. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of the reference. But that lefty song, it uh, wrote in the 70s with a guy named Steve Brines, a lot of the old Newgrass Revival records. Steve and I wrote the songs. And uh, he passed away in the 80s. And that song, I had lost it. I'd lost the tape of it, couldn't find it, always remembered it. And it, it wasn't kind of right for a Newgrass Revival, I didn't feel like. But um, but then I really got to thinking about it and search and search. Man, it took for. And then all of a sudden, one day, I found that song on a cassette tape in my, you know, mess of a room. And. Um, and I care, and it hadn't been rewound. There's a reason they just say "be kind, rewind." Well, it hadn't been rewound, so I carefully rewound it with a pencil. And and uh, I, as I played the tape, I, re- I recorded it onto a CD. And as soon as it got done with the song, the tape broke where it was probably in that spot. And um, happily, I, I did still like it. And Allison used to listen to those old Newgrass records, and uh, so I just I sent her the song. Said, "Does this?" appeal to you would you want to sing on it so she did and um never even performed not recorded by newgrass never even performed no never and we so far this band has played it one time in albany new york and we were going to play it recently but allison couldn't make it so i'm going to wait till she can come and then we'll do it <laughs> a handsome Sunday athlete wrote stories for the paper down on Main Street and chances he had chances to escape the small town life but his brother was deaf and dumb and couldn't be left behind the depression was going strong then actors were on the road one hot July, a girl came through in a WPA show. She was city bred and beautiful, a lady to her fingertips. As much at home in her velvet shoes as Lefty was in his. They fell in love on the courthouse square, but pretty soon her show moved on and she couldn't stay. Lefty couldn't go So 
the years passed and left he grew old With only his brother home And when Tommy died it was too late To find any place else and so Some nights he'd have a little whiskey For the summer on his mind And open his trunk and hold two velvet shoes And sit and cry Let's see, on the last record you sang with Del McCory, can you uh, talk about working with him? And um, you mentioned once also being impressed with the way he sang Pride, uh, Pride in the Name of Love with I got Well, yeah, with Del, well, uh, Del and, you know, I'm, I met 1970 when I first got out of high school on the road. I've always loved Del, and he is just the ultimate gentleman. And if there's a king of bluegrass, for me, his name is Del. And um, he's just phenomenal and, and his mind is wide open I really love that about him and you know when it comes out of his mouth it's bluegrass but he you know he'll he loves he'll he's willing to try any kind of song and uh, and Dell and I did a, 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 a duet uh, little tour back in 2013 and uh, we recorded about 13 shows and so now my next bit of homework is to try to sift through those and it's hard, you know, surely amongst 13 shows, we have a version of each song that we like. So, and I asked Dell if he wanted me to go through the first process and narrow them down. He said, yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> so he's happy for me to do the homework and then we'll get together and see which ones we like. That's good work. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, I, that would, I would love to see it come out. We'll see if we got enough songs. I, I'm, I got to think we do. Yeah, I would think you But we'll know. Many. We'll know. You know, I just haven't had time to go through them yet. You know, you know how I often sing songs in Dylan's in the shower. In, well, I do that too. But in, in Dylan's voice, uh-huh, yes, yes. Sam does the same thing with Lester Flat. Is that true? You, you, uh, well, I imagine it. Tony Rice and I used to have a thing, and we we imagined how Lester Flat would sing every song we ever heard. It's a disease. <laughs> you, you, how would Lester sing "Whole Lot of Love"? You know, how would <laughs> like a Rolling Stone? How would Le- well? Uh, you can find that one. Flat and Scruggs recorded "Like a Rolling Stone." Did they really? Absolutely. Look at they. I their, didn't know that. Their rock and roll record, not long before they broke up was called nashville airplane and it's got <laughs> kenneth buttry playing drums with them and so for out and out flat and scruggs fans it's a very dark period for me it's great because you have not lived till you heard lester sing like a rolling stone and a young very young randy scruggs plays lead guitar on the track i think wow. that was his first recording and uh, oh yeah but lester it, it's so great and then and then on 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 the first album lester did after flat and scruggs broke up he does, uh, or maybe it's on Nashville Airplane. It might be on that. Anyway, he does uh, Universal Soldier by, uh, by Donovan. It's, you just haven't lived till you've heard Lester Flat do some of these songs. Oh, She Belongs to Me was another great one by Dylan that <laughs> Lester sings. <laughs> I'd be curious what it would sound like him singing something like, I kissed a girl and, and I liked it. I kissed a girl and I like it. I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> I kissed a girl. I might do it again. <laughs> Let, let's go back to the Bluegrass Alliance, which predated um, Newgrass Revival. Um, how did you get to the point where you invited in? You were you were in Bowling Green, but the band was in Louisville. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I always knew them, and I used to ride uh, ride the Greyhound a couple of times up to Louisville to set in with them when I was in high school, and then uh, 
after I got out of high school, Dan Crary left first, and so they needed a guitar player. So Ebo Walker and Lonnie Pierce came down where I was then working at the Holiday Inn. Uh, bus boy, I wasn't playing music, and um, asked me if I was ready to move to Louisville, but you know, to take Dan Crary's place on guitar. Uh, yeah, I just got to get a guitar, <laughs> and so unfortunately, I traded off my first mandolin for the guitar. Uh, so, but and I was the guitar player for a little while, and not too long. And then uh, we, we saw we saw Tony Rice in a field at Reedsville, and so <laughs> that's when I asked him, if, "Hey, man, if you play guitar, then I can play mandolin." And then I went back and told everybody else, "Hey, I just got a guitar player." And that's when I found out that the youngest nineteen-year-old man, eighteen-year-old band, doesn't go hiring somebody. So, uh, but then when they heard Tony play, of course, everybody was on board with that. So, mm-hmm. and so he was in the band for a year. Was he still, I mean, amazing player, of course, but often the, the band gets real quiet around him. Was that the case back then, or was that something that happened later on? Uh-uh. <laughs> back <laughs> we, then he was more. We made him play hard. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, but what it was, you, you just had uh, limited microphones back then, and we had two or three on our own little PA playing in clubs. So basically you just got out of the microphones, and, and the guitar could be heard a little better, just get way out of the mics. But... Uh, yeah, it was it was a little bit later, I think, where Tony just realized, hey, I'm going to soften up and play, and if you guys can't hear me, you soften up. <laughs> so that's kind of how that works. And if you poke around YouTube, you can see a very boyish uh, Sam Bush singing One Tin Soldier with Bluegrass Alliance. You betcha. Now, Lonnie was the fiddle player and owned the name. That's true. What was the falling out between him and the rest of the band? I can't go into all of it uh it, it, we just we weren't agreeing we weren't agreeing on the kind of music and stuff and there was a a, a nasty incident down in nashville at the dj convention and i can't go into that either but even Lon- a lonnie was a little jealous of Astor clements let's put it that oh. way so uh but no i mean it's just it's it's just it's it's no big deal it's the story of every band you know mm-hmm. is the kind of thing where once you get away from each other you know, looking back, you can always go, really? And that was that important for us to hassle each other about? Uh, but, you know, in, I think in Lonnie's case, he was, he was like my dad's age. So he was older than even Ebo and Courtney were by 20 years. So I think it was, he was, it was just a different generation in the way we dealt with each other. And then so we told Lonnie we all won. We wanted him to leave the band. And he said, well, you can't fire me. I quit. So then when I said, well, let me put it this way. We all quit. So we quit, and we started our own band, and and that's I kind of got then I started playing fiddle again, and that new deal string band is what what uh, inspired you. They were one of the bands that inspired us. I mean, along with a lot of people, the Dillard's records were very much uh, the country gentlemen, same kind of thing. How is Tony Rice today? I don't know. I mean, honestly, uh, we, we text, and he hasn't texted back for a while, so I'm not sure. Tony, if you're listening. I love you. Up. I love you, Tony. Oh, we all love you. Um, and you were big on Garrison Keillor. He just retired. Is that correct? Yeah. And uh, Well, he retired from the broadcast. It's my understanding that he'll certainly still be involved, you know, in the production and writing and what have you. Do you know Joe Newbery? No, you don't. I know. Uh, let's see. What else? We're running out of time here. Um, did you discover Bela Fleck? No. <laughs> so he joined Newgrass in 81. Newgrass was established. Well, I first saw Bela playing in a band called Tasty Licks with Jack, Jack Toddle's band, Tasty Licks. 
and then from and then it was around that time Bela hired me to play fiddle on his first album Bob Applebaum played the mandolin Russ Berenberg on guitar and Mark Schatz on bass and so Bela really thought of me more as a fiddle player I think at first and then uh he then he got in his band Spectrum and they did that for a while but no, I don't. I don't know if anyone discovered Bela. It wasn't me. I, uh, but uh, I sure am glad he joined the Newgrass Boys for nine years. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. How's he changed, and how's he remained the same over the years? You think, from your perspective? Uh, well, how's he changed? He's drastically grown as a musician, and he's in areas I always figured he'd be in. You know, it's no surprise to me that he's doing duets with Chick Corea. Yeah, uh, this no, that doesn't surprise me at all. And so, in some ways, he's grown out the. Uh, just grown into areas no one ever expected that instrument to go in that's he's he's taken it where it's never gone before that's for sure and uh but in some ways he's i mean you know the way he and i get along he's we're still we're still brothers Mm -hmm. any chance of you guys uh performing together anytime in the near future well bela and jerry douglas edgar meyer me brian sutton and Stuart duncan once a year at the telluride bluegrass festival are the house band so we do that right. once a year, and uh, every once in a while we we might do it somewhere else. But it really, so it's kind of for Telluride. And on that note of Telluride, um, how how much has festivals changed in your opinion? Uh, Sam, you you've been he's played over forty in a row. Yeah, Telluride. Well, it's gone from you know a, a tiny stage where they borrowed part of RPA the first time we went mm-hmm. there to having this year they the, the town of Telluride built this beautiful now stage and and it's, and it got named after Fred Shellman the Fred Shellman Memorial Memorial Stage and uh it it well the Telluride Bluegrass Festival has just grown into big business but it's still a festival that only has one stage most fest a lot of them we play on now are multiple stages yeah. and to to keep the production running with just one stage through a whole festival is a hard job and well, boy they're they they got it down out there but they also have that the hidden secret which is uh with the bluegrass festivals the stage is just one venue really right. the other venue is the campsites there i mean there is a workshop around. stage in town at elks park but that's just you know that's not the same mm-hmm. type of thing as a different performance yeah. stage there's a lot of festivals we play at now you you finish your set and on another stage across the field another band starts right then and then and those are kind of good because you have an hour and a half to set up and make your sound right. Yeah. But it's it can be a challenge just running out and getting it to sound the way you want it to. But the crew at Telluride is phenomenal, and um, it's a joy to play there. And what's the strangest festival experience you've ever had? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> I guarantee Vince Herman was part of it, though. <laughs> no, but... Uh, <laughs> No, there used to be one up in Mole Lake, Wisconsin, that was the drunkest festival you'd ever be go to. I mean, the, because it was its own, it was run, it was on land uh, owned by Native Americans, and so there was no law on the land, and there were eleven cash bars out front. Mm-hmm. So it's a heck of a lot of difference from going from festivals that, you know, don't allow, you know, they search your cooler coming in. Not all this one, they encourage incredible drunkenness. <laughs> I don't know if they still have it or not. <laughs> well, I'm being told we're out of time. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to end with a song? Got to play. Oh, I'll play a little something here. But first, you get some tuning. Because he cares. Not tuning because you care. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a, a, a little version of an old fiddle tune, Cattle in the Cane. Let's see here. 
All right. Well, like a ring and a bell. Uh huh. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your uh, time. (laughs) Hopefully, we'll get to chat with you again. Thank you, friends. Thank you, neighbors. interview with sam bush we hope you enjoyed it we sure enjoyed talking with him wish we had more time though yeah it was pretty quick pretty lightning quick dance version i mean it was so quick my wife would say that was quick and we have spike from terrapin sitting right across from us howdy boys uh exciting times (laughs) welcome (laughs) welcome to inside out spike welcome back i should say and first off cheers and thank you for Terrapin's wonderful sponsorship, we really, really do appreciate it. Hey, appreciate it, man. Uh, like, I like it a lot. And we want to clear some things up about your recent, um, well, I guess you could say uh, not-so-hostile takeover, a friendly, a friendly uh, surrendering of the majority interest in the company for the good of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what would you like to know? Well, I think everyone wants to know, is the beer going to change? Uh, no, nothing actually is changing except for the ownership, right? So if 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 you guys don't know what we're talking about right now is that um, we have a strategic partner called Tenth and Blake. Uh, they're the craft division of Miller Coors, and they have been a minority partner with us for the past five years. And just this week, Wednesday, uh, they have now become the majority partner of Terrapin Beer Company. Um, I am actually still um, employed there and still part owner, which is very, very nice. Uh, I am vice president of um, of brewing development. And uh, yeah, we're going to keep rocking and rolling. And most importantly, you're still the final say in all things involving the, the, the ingredients and how the beer is produced. Yeah, absolutely. So all the beer is still coming out of uh, the facility here in Athens, Georgia. Um, like I said, the main thing that happened, and really the only thing that happened, is now basically they are majority owner. We're minority owner. So one thing that came to mind when I first um, when I first heard about this takeover was my you know my gut reaction is with any company, oh my god, they sold out and blah blah blah, which a lot of people initially think. But then I sat back and I said. Wait a second. It's been a five year, and I didn't realize it was five years. I thought it was like two years. But mm-hmm. for five years, you worked with this company. You, you, I don't know what to say, flirted, but you know, you, you were able to work out your relationship. So in that time, 
am I wrong to say that that you you had this idea that maybe this could happen eventually and that you felt them out and, and believe that they will treat your brand the way that you've birthed it? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, if, if you had, if this was three years ago, I don't think this would have happened, right? Um, as you look at the craft brewing industry and the beer brewing industry in general, um, there's a lot of changes coming down the pike, right? So basically the first day that we signed, or, or actually when we announced um, the majority ownership of Tenth and Blake taking over, that was the day that uh, Anheuser-Busch or ABI took over um, uh, the uh, Miller Coors um, entity or, um, gosh, what am I, I'm drawing a blank, uh, South African Brewery, so SAB. So ABI took over SAB. Um, so that was much huger news um, out there than, you know, Little Terrapin changing equity hands um, with Miller Coors or Tenth and Blake. But, um, yeah, as you can, you know, like I said, there have been a bunch of different uh, things happening out there. A lot of breweries taking on private equity, um, uh, breweries uh, basically forming alliances together to become more powerful, um, you know, and also you know, buyouts in general. Um, so I think you're going to see more consolidation in the brewing industry and, um, you know, more takeovers and uh, partnerships. And, and the split in the industry or among observers of the industry is some will tell you that it's a new era. These companies are coming in they're letting the craft brewers do their thing. And this is a permanent thing moving forward. And then there are others that say it's a temporary thing. This is just the way these big companies are getting into these breweries. Three, four, five, seven years down the line, it won't be the same way. Uh, that's yet to be seen, right? So, um, I I don't know what's going to happen. If I had a crystal ball, I'd let you know. But, um, for us, it it just felt right. I mean, like Seth alluded to earlier, I mean, we've, um, you know, they've been a part of our business for the past five years, so we know them. Um, I basically tell people that we've been walking down the aisle holding hands and we finally got married. Um... (laughs) So, yeah, it's an interesting time in the industry, and I think um, when you look at which direction you want to go in, um, I think some breweries are going to be very successful, and then other breweries are not. Um, There's 3,000 breweries in planning. There's over 4,000 craft breweries in the United States, and I just don't know how much room is left um, out there. Remember remember back in the day when Sierra Nevada was just a, just, you know, all you had was Sierra Nevada versus Newcastle, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like your your craft brews. Right. But now you've got like you said thousands of smaller companies out there here and I mean my wife and I were driving today and we looked and it was like she goes Oh, you mean those? She goes, look, Seth, those blue tarps. That's a brewery. I'm like, Amy, that's been a brewery for like two years, babe. Right. We have, but yet we've yet to step foot there or three taverns. This is all. There's three taverns, um, three taverns brewery, the blue tarp brewery, and the uh, the other one that's got more of the high uh, wild heaven. wild heaven. Mm-hmm. All within a mile from each other. All also a mile from my house, and right. I've been to Wild Heaven, the one that I couldn't remember the name. Yeah, <laughs> of, of course. Yeah. So, so my the reason why I even brought this up is that, you know, I feel like it's almost like uh, the brick and mortar um, boutique clothing shops versus um, Lucky Brand, and mm-hmm. and I look at uh, Terrapin as kind of a Lucky Brand, and I don't mean it on the lucky side, but maybe right. I do. But you have 
this corporate side that can that can really power the the brand, right? And and put it out there versus you know you these other companies that are not quite at that level. Now, not that they're not striving to be there or that they're going to get there. They may, but the corporate factor does accelerate the capabilities of being being able to become that and get your brand and your product out there. But the the question that Rob and I had that we keep we keep alluding to is. If you don't have the control, if you're if you're less than fifty percent and you don't have the control, you might how does how do you assure that your product can continue to grow and be the craft genius that it is? Uh, you put all that in your employee agreement. <laughs> no, I mean, gosh, I mean, if you don't trust your partner, right? And and if it's a marriage. I, I, yeah, I, I don't think God, it would be. It would be a terrible decision, right? So I kind of think like, um, you remember that big abominable snowman on Bugs Bunny? <laughs> you, you know, that big that big ass snowman? So it's like the big snowman. The yeah, the big snowman trying to pick up a little kitten and goes, oh, kitty, <laughs> and just squished the shit out of it, right? Uh, so if a large entity, you know, or a large brewer came in and took our brewery and just ripped it to shreds and pulled all the soul out of it, it's not going to do any good. So, I mean, when we sat down with these guys, it's like we are keeping total control of the brewery because the founders are, well, John's not there anymore. John went on to Asheville to open a brew pub. Um, But, I mean, Dustin and I are still in control, and, um, you know, we're calling the shots. And, you know, Terrapin is still Terrapin. And I think if they were to change the brand whether it be quality wise or you know use use ingredients that we don't use or gen, gen, uh, you know make it generic who's going to buy that but on you know? the ingredient side sorry mm-hmm. on the ingredient side having this heavy hand that has more buying power how does that affect your play uh hopefully positively right so you know when you are in a, a larger family uh, you know, just like just like an insurance company, right? So if you have a company that that employs three hundred thousand employees, you probably get a better rate on insurance than you would if you had an employees of five, right? So yeah, the buying power will be there. Um, you know, we hope to leverage that to get raw materials. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, we're going to cheapen the the brand at all or the beer at all. I mean. No one, has, no one is going to ask me, you know. Oh, you use uh, English crystal malt. Well, American crystal malt's cheaper. Why don't you use that? Well, then that would change the beer. So I have, I have the last say in how the beer tastes, um, you know, while I'm here. So, and I, I think it's important to point out, as obvious as it may be to some of you, that <clears throat> it's a testimony to the popularity of this beer that when this happened, so many people were so concerned that it stayed just the same because so many people love it and buy it all the time and you know so even though in a way it's probably annoying to you it's also kind of honoring you at the same time yeah and and you know i mean haters gonna hate 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 right so i i, I mean i i'm sure it hasn't happened yet but i'm sure at some point you know i'm gonna get an email and said why did you change the recipe of hopscutioner uh, no, we've been re- brewing that recipe the same time or the same way forever, and we will continue to brew it that way. Um, but I, I think I think people are just going to have this. Oh my God! You know, now Miller Coors or Tenth and Blake own a majority of your company, so the beer is automatically changed. 
you know, which is kind of weird. I think a great way for them to invest in you would be to improve that stage outside and really put a kick-ass concert <laughs> on you. Maybe, maybe amphitheater, you know, have it graduated with tears. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that wouldn't be my first choice. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because, you know, as we talked earlier about, you know, people saying, are things going to change and all that kind of stuff, it, it, it's like, you know, it's really nice to be with a strategic partner. These guys brew beer, right? So why should the consumer be mad at me for joining, uh, you know, getting into a partnership with someone who makes beer? Well, that's an, that's an obvious thing. I mean, if someone says, well, that's shitty beer, no offense to them. But mm-hmm. if they pr- their main product isn't something that's crafty, then it'd be like, well, that's going to water down, dilute the beer I like. True, but they're also associated with some pretty good craft beers, and that Crispin cider is pretty good. Yeah, but the bottom line is this. <clears throat> Miller Coors sells how many millions of barrels of beer a year? They can't be that damn shitty. Right. I mean, you know, it's you might not drink it, or you know, but you, a lot you realize of people the do. election climate that we've got going on right now, right? Yeah, I'm I do. Right, so we're not going <laughs> to get into that. But I, you know, on that note, though, and on another note, and a notes that combine, because this is a music podcast. My question now comes to this. Yes. Do you find any similarities or see any similarities to what's happening in the craft brew industry versus record labels? Back in back back when uh, the eighties and nineties or early nineties, late eighties, when money was just being dropped and mm-hmm. and and you're you know you had a band. I mean, are we going to see one hit wonders uh, out of the out of this uh, new phase of 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 the big corporate, you know? coming through and putting their money into and dialing into the craft breweries? I mean, I I think that's a great question, but I think it's almost like, it's probably like everything else because if you invest money in something and put something on the market that doesn't sell, what are you going to do? You're not going to keep producing it. Well, in the music industry, they just kept hiring new people and putting more money into it which you know is very similar to the housing market (laughs) and apparently the car industry now too, right? Let me ask you this. There's constantly legislation going on that affects you guys directly. Is there any pending legislation right now that would affect how, how you can hire, what you can do at the brewery, what you can't, that sort of thing? Uh, the only thing... Whoa. Oh, everybody on here? Yeah, we're good, we're good. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to get... Are we there? Hey, we're good. I'm, can you hear me? Uh, hello. Yeah. Um, I really don't want to say too much about Georgia law because I don't have anything good to say about it. Um, I just hope that, you know, we can start passing some laws that really benefit the breweries here in the state, because as of now, it's us in Mississippi, uh, to the race to the bottom. Uh, it would be really nice if you guys can come out to the brewery and I can actually sell you a pint of beer across the bar and, you know, you guys can actually buy beer to take home. You know, so is it that way in California and Colorado and some of these other? Oh, absolutely. Colorado. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember you, I went to a couple of breweries where you could have walked on with it. Yeah, and it's um, it's pretty, it, it's frustrating. I, I, I think if these laws were in play when I started the brewery in two thousand and two, uh, we would probably easily be over a hundred thousand, almost a two hundred thousand barrel brewery a year. On that note, speaking of Colorado. As the pot industry starts to grow, Mm -hmm. uh, to a brewer in the brewing industry, I always wonder if the pot thing is going to turn into a very similar experience as going to the brewery or going to the winery. 
And 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 on that note, how that how what's even going on say uh, with the takeover that you have currently, if that's going to start, we're going to see the same thing with the cigarette companies and and pot when it starts getting really really legalized. That's an excellent question. I'm not in the industry, but um, I wouldn't doubt it. Right? I mean, come on, big corporations aren't going away, right? So they are going to do everything they possibly can to stay in business, right? So if the large breweries are losing volume and losing drinkers, I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, acquire little crap breweries so you can, you know, brew more beer and, and stay relevant. I mean, you got to good, – good, successful businesses change with the times, mm-hmm. right? So. And it was this uh – uh was this a, uh, how would you say, oh yeah, here you go. Was this something that as you started brewing, was this kind of your end goal or is this just something that's new and part of your journey? Man, you know, I, I never actually thought about retirement or a retirement plan. But, you know, being in the industry for 20 years and being, you know, 20 years old like I am, uh <laughs> You know, you start to think about your life and how are you going to get there, right? So Terrapin, it is my 401k, right? It It is my way of retirement, right? So I've built something um, to retire on. You know, I, I, I haven't worked for a Fortune 500 company for the past 30 years and have a 401k and all that. Um, did I think about it 20 years ago? Hell no. I just thought about having fun. Um, but I think when you look at a business and you look at the industry that you're in, you have to make that decision and go, if I pull the trigger and I do this, then my employees are going to be safe, I'm going to be safe, the business is going to be safe, and we're going to have a good life. And while we have you here, we have to ask, what do you have uh, under your hat coming up as far as side projects, collaborations, or new full-time beers? A whole bunch of stuff, right? So we just canned Cranberry Pumpkin Fest. Uh, last week, so that is, uh, we do a, a beer every year called Pumpkin Fest, which is a pumpkin beer. This year we added cranberry, so it's Cranberry Pumpkin Fest. We should get that up to New England. I bet that would go over big up there. Especially in November. <laughs> Mordecai, you were last week. <laughs> um, we just put something in the tank called Smoke on the Porter, which is a... Um, a Baltic porter. Uh, I thought you were going to say it's a New Orleans porter. Frank Zappa and the Mothers drink the best beer in town. Uh, um, so back to the porter. Anyway, Smoke on the Porter is a smoked Baltic porter aged on French oak. And really? yeah. Where do you get that French oak? Uh, it's a company called the Barrel Mill. They get it from Baltimore. Ah, Baltimore porter. <laughs> I like that. Um, so yeah, so they make these... Um, they make these wood spirals that we put in the tanks, and we age it on the wood spirals. And then next week we are doing, I don't remember the name of this beer. It's a collaboration that we're doing with Taco Mac. It's going to be one of their beers of the month. And uh, it is going to be another porter, but it's going to be like a hazelnut coffee chocolate porter. Very interesting. So there'll be Condor Chocolate, which is a local um, chocolateer in Athens. And not, then... Not, not- not the one from. Didn't you do something with the other chocolate one from? Nashville? Olive and Sinclair. Yeah, 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 I mean we use those guys all the time. Uh, we wanted to do a, a Georgia beer. Uh, obviously, A with Taco Mac, B with Terrapin. 
C with Condor, and then Jittery Joe's for the coffee. So it's like an it's like a locals only type beer. Yes, uh, and I think that's it. Well, we'll obviously we're going to do wake and bake again, um, but this year we're also going to do uh, cherry wake and bake. It's going to be a tart cherry wake and bake. What's the most? Um, what do you get the most response from of all your side project beers ever? The most clamoring for. I guess you have that contest coming up again, right? Where people get yeah, to select every four years. Um, you know, it used to be the All American Imperial Pilsner. This year, we did an All American uh, Oat Pale Ale, and we picked a couple of our favorite vendors: uh, uh, Roy Farms, which is a, a hop grower, Bree Malt, and Epiphany Malting from North Carolina. And basically, you can go online, or you can come to the brewery, and you can vote. For a beer that we don't necessarily produce anymore, and we will make that beer next year. All right, Spike, you and I have been friends for years, <clears throat> and I've been wanting to get you on Jam Cruise. I wanted to get, I've been wanting to get you back on Jam Cruise. I think just Hell now yeah. I figured out how we're going to do it. You ready for this? Uh, I'm ready. Can, can I sit in a dinghy and you guys can drag me along? Well, better than that. <laughs> what we're going to do is you need to develop your next porter. It's going to be called the George Porter Jr. beer. Oh, that's nice. And then we'll release it on Jam Cruise. Sweet. Huh? All right. Well, thank you so much, Spike. I really appreciate you being honest and open and everything with us. And uh, hang on a second. What's that? Uh, Rob, is someone calling? Oh, hold on. Let me let me plug this in. I, we still, By the way, we still have a two-channel board, so we need a four-channel board or more to be able to make this more. But here we go. I'm going to unplug... Hello. Oh. Hello. Hey, baby. So, uh, Spike, I just want to thank you. My uh, my husband and I um, we, we don't really listen to the show so much, but my son he tells me you're a sponsor, and I just want to know: Are you responsible? Oh, oh, I am. I I'm very responsible. Do you you understand? My son's not he he's not allowed to drink too much alcohol, especially after midnight. You remember the movie The Gremlins? Yeah, you know the Gremlins. Gremlins? What? What do you mean the Gremlins? You gotta you gotta can't talk to him about the Gremlins. He doesn't. What do you get? Just Marty, just please go in the other room and watch the TV. The the Olympics is on. Spike. You yeah, still there? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. Okay, I just, I just want to know. Just are you taking good care of my Seth? Yeah, yes. What about the blah blah Rob? Are you gonna take good care of him? I am, but Seth, Seth's mom, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. Do you know who the fifth Beatle is? Mm-hmm. Its name is Go to Your Room. Damn! I thought it was Chewbacca. Uh, sorry, guys. I, I definitely. Definitely don't need my mother on the radio show ever again. I apologize about that. Uh, Spike, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I like your mother. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, Rob, seriously, that restraining order just expired. <laughs> do I need to do it again? You're so hard on yourself sometimes. Bungolio. Spike. He's actually funny once, and, and he doesn't think he's funny. What? What is wrong with you? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Spike, cheers. And to everyone listening, thank you so much. Inside Out, WTNS, Terrapin Beer. And Spike went way out of his way, on his way from Athens to freaking Calgary, right? We're basically, you're on your way to Calgary, isn't that uh, right? I leave for Calgary tomorrow, and I'll be in BAM for a couple of days, and then back to Calgary. I'm learning uh, learning about malt. <laughs> back that malt up. Yeah, that right. And to Wonder Dog Sound Studios, thank you guys. Josh Thane, <laughs> Robert Kwan, and Mark. Any- Mark. Dog. Oh, yes, and Mark. And Mark. And we leave you with these fine words. And the new intern, Adrian, who's doing an excellent job. And we leave you these fine words from Spike. 
Fine words from Spike. Drink beer, drink it now, drink it cold. A favorite Iron Maiden quote. Whoa, Eddie rules. (laughs) (laughs) Take it away, Nico. In my hurry, I can't ever seem to get no. And I am halfway there All I carry Is this remedy to see you again So I'm sending out This signal that I'm traveling to you As fast as I can To the crowded station gate A month of Sundays just to make it
Aubrey when I was just a child. Porter on his J200 would drive the whole crowd wild. Lester played a 28. Ernest had his Epiphone. Some of us can still recall Hank and his herringbone. Then along came the 60s. Making stars, they took some good old country boys and cased up their guitars. When the cameras started rolling, they were out there all alone with nothing to hold on to but a handheld microphone. Country boy, keep on strumming. TV star Remember Waylon Jennings And the way it used to be And Mike's killed country music And that's what's killing me You know you gonna wow 
Nobody's asked me 